Welcome to Life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. My name is Lori Metz, and I created this podcast for those who are trying to conceive. I hope this episode helps you on your family building journey. Welcome to Life, Love, Insight, Fertility Experiences. I'm here today with Lisa Stark Hughes, and I had like the honor of meeting her at Resolve Advocacy. We were on the same committee. And when I found out what she did, I thought it was so amazing that I was so glad that she came on the podcast today to talk to everybody about the fact that she is the president of GS Moms and Post Mom in Uganda. And also, she is the educational chair of SEEDS, which is the Society for Ethics and Egg Donation Surrogacy. So she has been involved in surrogacy for many years and so well-versed in it, just personally, professionally, legally. So Lisa, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Oh, please. My pleasure. You know, when we were talking about what to talk about. There's just like so much here to start with, <laughs> to be honest with you. So maybe if you're okay with it, we could just talk about how you got into the field of surrogacy. Because people don't talk about it too much that are not in the field. I can't explain it to you, but like when I work with people who are starting to look for surrogacy and surrogates, they don't know that much about it at all. So some people forget that I used to be a surrogate because I've been, you know, in the in the professional sphere for so long. But that's actually how I started. So when I was pregnant with my youngest daughter, my sister actually asked me if I would be her surrogate. And the plan was that my youngest sister was going to be the egg donor. So that was like the plan. But then obviously I had to deliver first and to finish that pregnancy. That was my fifth pregnancy. So that tells you how long ago it was that, you know, that wasn't a rule. But so, but then a month before I delivered, she had an opportunity to adopt. So they chose to go that path, which was totally fine. And then when my youngest daughter was about two and a half, I decided that I wanted to go to law school, but I didn't want to take out a bunch of student loans. You know, five kids are expensive. It just didn't want to take on that debt. For five kids and then being a surrogate is unbelievable to me. So then I was kind of looking around for different options and I saw an ad for surrogacy, which kind of just reminded me about, you know, a few years before. And so at that point we had, you know, some of the older kids were a little older and so we talked to them and said, well, okay, would you rather me go to work, which was kind of a foreign concept to them. You know, they'd been used to me being at home and being available to them and chauffeuring them around like everywhere. Or I could be a surrogate. Like these are the options. What do you guys think about it? Well, probably for totally selfish reasons, but they decided that me being a surrogate was the best plan. They actually knew more of what that would be like because me being pregnant was a very common thing for them. So they knew how that would impact their lives. So I moved forward and I carried twins. I, I yeah. So if I children at home, you carried twins as a surgeon. I, I carried twins. I carried them full term. I delivered them vaginally. Like I had to be induced. I think they were going to stay there until they were, you know, like going to college or something. So it's like textbook as far as, you know, a twin pregnancy, like everything you would want it to be. I was only in labor for four and a half hours. That's what? to deliver both of them. So yeah, like I'm the poster traveler. See, you can do twins, but 
I also know that don't use me as an example. Like that's not the most common thing. I think probably part of it was that my last two children were pushing 10 pounds. They're both nine something. And so for me, carrying twins was only like another pound or two more. Like it wasn't that much different for my body. When they were born, they were both in the low sixes, like six one and six three. So it's still a great size. Yeah. Well, like I said, I carried to term. Like I was I was 38 weeks and like three days when they induced me. So yeah, like they were literally full term and I think they're gonna stay there forever. And were the parents in the room when you delivered? Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, in between the first and the second twin, the mom asked me if I would carry for them again. <laughs> and, and and her husband said, like, now's probably not a good time to ask this question. Like, let's wait a little bit, get used to the twin. You know, at this point, the second one wasn't even born yet. She's so like, let's just wait a minute. And, you know, we can talk about this later. And they ended up just being happy with their twins. They didn't do another sibling journey, but, you know, they were so excited. But yeah, they were there. We kind of pulled strings. So with, even though I delivered vaginally, it was twins. So I still had to deliver in the operating room just in case they had to do an emergency c-section but we kind of pulled strings and i kind of advocated for the intended parents and anyway so we were able to get them into the room so they were there for delivery so wonderful oh that's wonderful yeah so part of it was while i was doing this pregnancy i was also in law school and for those that aren't aware the law is different in every single state regarding surrogacy and not only is it different like logistically different, but the foundation, like the basis of where that law comes from is different in every state. And I found that fascinating. So in Utah, for example, it's based on family law, like it started with their adoption law, and then they kind of like tweaked it for surrogacy. In California, it's based on contract law. So just the come from is different. And I just found that fascinating. So after I was done with that journey, then I started working for an agency. That particular agency, the way that it was set up is all of their employees were independent contractors. So having gone through law school, I understood that I had to have, like, I couldn't only work for that company. I had to do something on my own. And the way that we made sure there wasn't a conflict was that agency would only work with domestic intended parents, meaning American parents. And so I only worked with international intended parents. So that was kind of how we resolved that. Well, they were with international intended parents. When so, I first started, yeah. In other words, would the intended parent be here in the United States looking to go abroad or vice versa? No, no, vice versa. So it'd be international parents from other countries wanting to come to the U.S. Okay. Wow. And so then when that agency was put up for sale... Then a lot of us, you know, as independent contractors kind of focused on our businesses and kind of grew them up from there. And for me, it was kind of right around the time that China was starting to talk about getting rid of their one child policy, which took a few years, but it kind of created an advantage because there's some things that you kind of have to understand about international intended parents is a little bit different in your processes than domestic intended parents. And so we were already kind of set up for that. Oh, there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration. when you're- Yeah. So being able to explain health insurance, like American health insurance, it's complicated for Americans. So yeah. imagine coming from a country where there's socialized medicine or, you know, different things like being able to explain why some things are covered and some things aren't, 
you know, why can you not use her insurance until, you know, she's released to her OB? Like, these are just foreign concepts. You know, what kinds of things they need once they get home. And then there's a legal aspect too, because it's not just the legal processes and the laws here that apply. You also need to make sure that the processes here are still going to allow them to get citizenship and travel documents to go back home to their home country. So you have to be kind of aware of all of those and then figure out where they can do surrogacy here. So there's just a lot of different things like that. I mean, I think each piece of that is so significant, right? Because you can't really go through international surrogacy without knowing the law, without knowing the health insurance coverage and how it's going to get paid for, how this care is going to be administered. Right. So we were already kind of set up, like we already had that learning curve established, whereas a lot of other agencies now had to start learning about some of those things. So that was really helpful. So that's how I got into surrogacy. (laughs) And so now you started this company through that, right? That's how your GS... Right, GS Moms. Started through that. And so how long ago was that? That was a while ago already. Yeah, that was actually... So, I mean, I started like a little bit, right? In 2010, because I was still working for the other agency, right? So that's when I actually started it. But then it really, like I was doing it on my own more, I guess I was dedicated more, right? On my own, on my own company, because I wasn't working for the other one about 2013, right around there, 2012. So Lisa, let me ask you, your agency is based where? Northern California, but I have employees in a variety of places throughout the country. So I'm in Northern California. But people can use your surrogacy agency from anywhere in the United States. Is that how it works? Or just yep, anywhere in the world, actually. Anywhere in the world. Wow, that's amazing. And so when it comes time to, I'm just curious because I have a good amount of people who are using surrogates right now. And it becomes overwhelming, the process of how to find the surrogate and how to decide which surrogate to use and which company to use. And so are there things to look out for or how do you make those selections? Like how do you even learn about it? So I think there's two things. One is finding what agency to work with, and that's going to have one set of criteria. And then choosing what surrogate to work with is kind of a different set of criteria. So for what agency you're going to work with, it kind of depends on what it is you're looking for. So a lot of times parents will assume like in order to have, if I want to have a surrogate that lives near me, I need to have an agency that is in my state or near where I want my surrogate to be. That's not actually true. Most agencies work with surrogates from all over the country, as long as it's a surrogacy friendly state. But what you do want to look for is what are their programs? So for example, what's their expectations? So like there are some agencies that will require you to put $100,000 into escrow in order to get onto their waiting list. You know, that's going to work for some parents and not for other parents. Other agencies are going to ask you to put down a portion of the agency's fee up front to save your spot on the waiting list. Others are going to say you don't have to put down anything. You can pay once you match. There's just a variety of programs out there. And it really depends on what's going to work for you. Also talk to them about kind of their matching process and then what coordination looks like throughout the journey. So for example, some agencies are very rigid. Like every step is the same for every single parent, regardless of what it is that you want. And then others will be like, what is it that you want? And then they are flexible with that to give you what it is that you're looking for. So talking to them, I would be careful of any agency that hasn't been in business for at least five years. 
And the reason why I say that is even once they start in business, let's say they have their very first surrogate, she gets pregnant, it's a year and a half to two years before that journey is done, right? So even by the time you get to five years, there's not a whole lot of experience there yet, meaning that they have run into a lot of issues. And issues aren't necessarily like some big, huge scandal. It can just be, you know, normal parts of the process. It doesn't happen with everyone. So for example, having a surrogate that has a subchorionic bleed in the first trimester, and they basically end up on and off bed rest throughout the whole pregnancy. If they've never dealt with that, then they might not have thought to protect you as a parent from that and make those recommendations to kind of help you. They might just be like, okay, now you owe basically entire pregnancy worth of lost wages because she's been off of, and I don't necessarily mean a cap, like there are insurance policies that you can purchase that will cover those lost wages or at least limit your liability. So it just kind of takes that experience before you've dealt with a bunch of those things. And every agency develops those processes from experience. It's one of the nice things about seeds is that you can learn from other people's experience before you've actually had to deal with that yourself because you can kind of share that knowledge. Seeds started not that long ago. Seeds, again, I'm just going to repeat the name, is the Society for Ethics and Egg Donation and Surrogacy. And really, what's their mission or how come they started? So they started back in 2012. And basically, Wendy Wilson-Miller and Lisa Chia, it was a time in surrogacy where Teresa Erickson, like there were different scandals going on, like big scandals. And surrogacy agencies was kind of like the wild west a little bit like there's for people that don't know there's really no regulating body for surrogacy agencies there is for doctors there's for mental health professionals there's for attorneys but for agencies like there's no licensing structure there's not a degree that you can get yeah i didn't know that that's amazing to me yeah it doesn't exist so Everybody kind of develops their plan based on their experience. And most people that get into this field have either been an intended parent or a surrogate or an egg donor, right? And they kind of build it. So a seeds is was seeds put together with the thought of developing creating standards, creating standards for agencies. So it's kind of a best practices. So all of the members of seeds basically promise to follow the standards. You can go to the website and download them so that you can read them. And know what they are, whether you use a member agency or not, I would still recommend people go and download those and review them because they're still best practices. Like you should still know that your insurance policy should be reviewed by an insurance professional, whether it's required by your state law or not, or for by your surrogate state law or not. Like it still should be reviewed. And that's there to protect you. Like it's not some arbitrary, you know, rule so that the insurance people can make money like it's there for a reason it's tricky and you need somebody that specializes in that to know how to handle it you can't call up your insurance company and just ask is this covered or is it not covered i can almost a hundred percent guarantee you you're gonna get the wrong answer and i don't care which answer they give you it's probably gonna be wrong so you need people with that kind of expertise the customer service people at your insurance company don't know and they're not going to be able to interpret it correctly so you really need to have that done for your own protection both the surrogates and the intended parents protection and the agency's protection as well 
And what about like the medical screening for the surrogate? Are there standards for that, that type of physical or mental, emotional, psychological screening? So SEEDS has standards for the psychological aspect of psychological screening as far as what that should look like, what it should cover, and who should do it. But as far as medical screening, ASRM already has that guideline in place for medical doctors. So SEEDS doesn't have one just for that. It's more of a timing issue, like, you know, before a profile is shown, what should be done, right? Those types of things are in the standard. So, like, their medical records should be reviewed. You should have an OB clearance letter, you know, before a profile is ever shown. Mental health for the psych eval, you know, the surrogate should have her standardized testing done, like PAI or an MMPI by a licensed professional, but there should also be like a group, you know, one with after you're matched, you know, with the intended parents and the surrogate as well, and what kinds of things should be covered. That's in there. Right. Okay. ASBM also has guidelines on that, I believe. So for their the psyche, their educational consult. Right. Yeah, to foster that. And that communication is really important, you know, because that's the piece that I work on actually is that communication and how to establish it and how to continue to have it. So those consults and those evals and all of this information that's being provided by SEEDS. I think everybody going down a surrogacy journey should definitely be aware of it and know about it. So right, which is why you can download them on the website. Yeah. They're, really. they're accessible to everyone. You just have to go look. You just have to go with it. So now you're doing all this, all of this. And at SEAS, what's your role there? So I'm an officer and I'm also the education chair. So we put on two conferences a month. And we put on one webinar a month for professionals with the relevant topics in the field right now. Because as people know, things are always changing in this field. So to kind of just keep everybody up to date, we discuss things that might be not clear cut, right? Debating what, you know, different viewpoints are on different things, things like that. We will have like a panel. And then we also have online modules as well about all of the standards for for professionals as well. Actually, this is professionals, not for intended parents. The intended parents can download the criteria, which is very important and really know if there's a red flag or something. So my goodness, you're you're kind of busy. You have five kids. You start a service agency. You do this and you're doing work in Uganda. Yes. I only have one left at home, though, as far as kids go. Like most are out of the house already, so. Just I, know, one. I have friends who say they never really leave. So <laughs> all my friends try to tell me that they're always still there. But there's less running around. Yes. Less running like around. I'm off. They have their, de- you know, well, they're either in college or have their degrees. I only have one left at home. And so, yeah, I'm not having to chauffeur them around anymore. That took a lot of time. I bet it did. I bet it is. So in your free time, you decided to start another company? Of course. So with Uganda, what happened was actually I've known somebody who used to live in Sacramento, which is Northern California, for about 10 years. And then he went back home to do a, a job, actually, to film a movie. And then his dad, who he's from Uganda, so but his dad, who's in the government, said, it's time to come home. Like, you need to come and take your place. So he ended up working for his father. And he was in a meeting, some government meeting, where they were kind of discussing surrogacy regulations and what they should be. So in... 2020 surrogacy had been going on in Uganda for about 15 years, and but they were looking for how to regulate it to make sure that everyone was protected. So in Uganda, they have women's ministers. So each district 
the women will actually elect a female politician that advocates for women's issues in parliament. So one of these women's ministers was actually looking into surrogacy for herself and realized that there weren't a lot of protections for the surrogates mostly, but really kind of either side. So just to give you an example, intended parents would sign a contract with the IVF clinic and surrogates would sign a contract with the IVF clinic, but the only people that had an attorney were the IVF clinic. And the surrogates and the intended parents did not have a contract directly with each other. They didn't have any contact. And she's like, this just can't be right. But like most politicians, like she didn't have any practical or logistical experience in surrogacy. So that makes regulation difficult if you don't actually know what needs to be done. So in one of those meetings, my friend was there and he said, well, I know somebody that can probably answer your questions because they had a lot of questions. Well, what about this? And how is this done in other places? And they had done a bunch of research. And so he reached out to me and asked if I'd be willing to help. And I said, of course. And so, you know, it started with video calls and emails and, you know, things like that, conversations on WhatsApp to kind of just answer their questions about how it could be done or kind of how it should be done. And then they invited me to come to Uganda in 2020. And I was invited by the office of the president and they set up all of these meetings. So I talked to everybody that might have an opinion or be involved in the surrogacy process at all. So everybody from their public health, which is called the Ministry of Health, to the URA, which is their IRS, to their interreligious council, which is the heads of all their religions in the country and like everything in between. And so after that, after those meetings that I made my recommendations about how they could follow basically the American standards and best practices there in Uganda and what their regulations should be. And so then it went through the normal political processes and parliament. One thing that's interesting, though, different than here is in Uganda, the men don't feel like they really have a right to regulate women's bodies. And part of that is because the women have representatives, elected representatives, right? So the women's ministers basically were all on board with this and mm-hmm. said, this is great. This is protecting women, but it also is helping you know, those who can't have children be able to have children. And so they saw it as just a really positive thing. And because the women's ministers were on board with it, the men would just look really bad. Jeremy, in in Ugandan society, the men would look bad if they said, oh, well, this is a woman's issue, but we think it's wrong. It just doesn't look good. And the religions were all on board with it as well. So that's what I wanted to ask you about with with the meeting. I mean, you make it sound so simple as you talk about what you did, but I can't imagine any of this simple, frankly, you know, to me with all the different religions and all the parliament and the politics and the bureaucrat, you know, bureaucracy that was going on. But what was it like to meet with the different religions there? So I was more nervous about that meeting than I was meeting the president or the prime minister or the speaker, like any other meeting. And that's because my frame of reference was religion in America. So when surrogacy regulations happen in America, it's quite often religious groups that come out against surrogacy just in general, right? So... That was kind of my expectation, but that's not what I found. So the head so the head of the interreligious council changes, like they kind of rotate or whatever. And but at the time it was the Mufti, which is the head of the Muslim religion. And so there was 
see, there was the Mufti, who's the head, but then some of the other religions were Catholic, Ugandan Orthodox, which is kind of like Greek Orthodox, but the Ugandan version, right, as far as the heritage, how it goes. Seventh-day Adventist, Pentecostal, Baptist, like, you know, mostly Christian religions. And like there is surrogacy in the Bible, right? So we kind of started from there. A lot of people only think of, well, Isaac and Sarah had had a surrogate, but then that was, you ended up with Isaac and Ishmael, right? Which created the big rift and they kind of stopped there. Like, so therefore surrogacy is bad. But I mean, there in the scriptures, there's a story about how, is it Hagar? Anyway, I forget the name of the surrogate, but she so Sarah was actually kind of jealous and not treating her really well because she had Ishmael and she ran off. She ran away and an angel appeared to her and said, like, basically, this is for a reason. And in this, we are fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant through you. You need to go back. Well, angels don't appear to people that are doing things that are wrong, typically. Right. So, you know, but there was this foundation of the Bible because all religions actually believe in the Old Testament. So the Muslims, Christians have all of that in common. And then you have Jacob and Rebecca that use two different surrogates as well. And it just says that they did and that they had children. And that's the end of the story. Like there weren't any complications there. So, you know, you have these recognized biblical figures that were able to do surrogacy and it kind of breaks down that, I don't know, resistance, I guess. It, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, and it makes sense that it does, right? Because this is the basis of religion. So you can't fight that. Yeah. And I just found the religious leaders in Uganda were more practical, I guess, pragmatic. Like they see infertility as like a social problem. Like it creates problems in marriages. That's how they look at it. So for example, the Muslim religion, they allow multiple wives and so they said the biggest reason why a man will take on a second wife is because his, he can't have children with his first wife they said but then it, it can create issues between the wives so they have all these rules like if you have two wives like everything has to be equal and it was really fascinating actually but you have to you know if there's this contention between the two wives like they see that as not healthy either so they found surrogacy would be an answer to that issue. So in the Muslim tradition, they have rules about wet nurses, like wet nurses are allowed, but a wet nurse's children cannot marry the children of the family that they went, you know, that they nursed for because they're kind of like siblings. Like that's how they look at it is they're like siblings. So your wet nurse is now kind of like your family. And they, so their biggest issue was how can we make sure that the children do not marry? I said, well, if the surrogate and the intended parents know each other, which is what we want to do anyway, then how are their children going to get married, you know, without the parents knowing? And they said, okay, that works. You're right. That's fine. There was a lot of questions about the logistics, about how a pregnancy happens during surrogacy. Like, yes. you know, the embryos created from these, you know, gametes, then it's put into the surrogates. You know what I mean? Like those kinds of questions to make sure that there weren't any conflicts, but everybody was on board. When I spoke to somebody from the archdiocese about fertility treatment, he kept saying that, you know, the inception had to happen in the womb, but they were working with certain hospitals to see if they could change it, where it would be okay to do it in a lab. I mean, and he was explaining how the religion is so old 
that it takes so many years, at least in the United States, for the religion to catch up to the science. But he was a very open man and very receptive and believed in it. But the church itself and that he was representing the church, you know, had still a lot of question about how a, a fetus, how an embryo was created. It's interesting. Right. Well, your tell is so far advanced, it's just like a whole nother level of what you experienced. Well, in Uganda, just in general, they don't have this concept of my religion is the only religion or like the correct religion, which is something that you find a lot here in America, right? Like, and even just remember people, whatever religion you are, this is like, this is the one true religion and everyone else is wrong. They don't have that in Uganda. Their belief is if you believe in God, that's an important thing. And let's focus on the commonalities, which is be nice to each other. Like yeah, that's be a good person. Yeah, be a good person. Be nice to each other. That's true among all religions. So let's focus on that. And so it's just different. Yeah, it's really different. So you mentioned like if somebody had a wet nurse, the wet nurse's children couldn't marry the children that they for. And so in the United States, so I'm assuming that these children grew up and the theory behind it was let's tell the children right away. Whereas in the United States, there's so many mixed feelings that go on about disclosure and talking to children. And so do the agencies or do seeds or do you do anything along those lines in terms of helping the parent with the disclosure or telling the story? For like Indonesia? Well, just even surrogacy, even if it's not a donation, but even if it's surrogacy with the embryo of the intended parent or the recipient parent, is there anything that's put out about that? Because I've only heard stories about when the surrogate is still in touch with the child after the child is born. So uh, there isn't a standard about that yet, mostly because they're still working on kind of how to word it, Right. But it is required in the standards that parents have that psychoeducational consult, which it's always addressed there. And it says that it should be addressed there, like what their plans are, it should be discussed. But we quite often have people from the donor conceived council come and speak at our conferences. So we're very aware of that perspective and we're trying to find ways to improve practices. So we have panels. For example, at our conference in November, we're having one. So what we're finding as professionals is that the intended parents and the donor will say, we're okay knowing each other, right? Or having contact in some form. They're okay being in contact with each other. But the paperwork that goes to the attorneys quite often will still say anonymous. So the paperwork, the legal contracts are then drafted up as being anonymous. And so we're trying to bridge that gap so we can improve the practices so that the intentions of the parties are the ones that are reflected in legal documents. For surrogates, I think, and I would have to go back and look, I think that it's a part of one of the standards that says something like you can't do anonymous or you know something like that for surrogacy. Like It has to be open, which is standard. Yeah, right. So the so just to clarify just a little bit in my own mind, because I do the educational consults. I, I happen to love doing the educational consults. And I think that they're so valuable. And people who participate in them, like the intended parent, who will be the recipient parent, really, sometimes there's a little fear involved. 
But please make sure you go to somebody who hasn't done them, who will spend a good hour with you, at least, you know, to go through those those questions and conversations that you may have on your mind that you may not have talked about, and disclosure, and talking to your family, and all these other things are all part of it and intricate in it. And I do a lot of work, actually, also with the Donor Conceived Community and with both organizations, right? So the Donor Conceived Council and the Donor Conceived, I always confuse the Dear Donor Conceived. Or not, we are donor conceived. I don't actually do a lot of work with them, but I do work with the donor conceived council and the donor conceived support and with those two groups. And one of them takes care of the legal issues in the United States and the other focuses on the mental health in the United States. And these are the people who are born through donor conception. So I see that a little bit differently than born through surrogacy if you're not using donor. And with the donors and the banks, I found what you said very interesting because the move is towards disclosure and the move is not towards anonymity. So the fact that the contracts have that in them is, is I'm using the word surprising again, but it is surprising to me because I thought that that would no longer be the case. I thought that it would- Well, it's been less often than it used to be, but- there's still contracts out there that are drafted that way. And a lot of parents don't even know that it's like an option to not be anonymous or so it can't just be from the attorneys, right? Because the match is set up at the agency side. And so it needs to be presented to both parties as an option and what they want that to be. And they kind of follow through, right? So, but I would always encourage parents too that, or donors, either one, that have decided that they would like to change their status, you know, to open to contact, to let your agency know, and, you know, they can kind of help facilitate that. Like we have that happen all the time where we'll have one or the other party reach out to us and say, you know, we did a donor contract 10 years ago. Now I wish that it hadn't been anonymous. And we'll reach out to the other party and just see, you know, are you open to changing your status? If so, they're, you know, they're open. And most people, at least in my experience, are open to it and, you know, we can connect them then. So, And so you do a lot of work with donor conception as well as with surrogacy. We used to. We're not doing donors anymore. We stopped with COVID. But before that, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could talk to you about this all day because I find it fascinating. You know, and a lot of people, I don't know the percentage, but a lot of people who use surrogacy also have to use donor, either donor egg or donor embryo or donor sperm. And so there's so many pieces of that that you want to be sure all the legal is there. Right. So I don't know. That's a huge position that you have at Seeds. And I believe that you're volunteer there with that position. Yeah, everyone's volunteer, except we have one paid part-time admin, you know, that helps with like sending emails and getting information out and that kind of stuff, but everybody, and there's a lot of volunteers. So there's the president, the officers, and then we have a bunch of committees that are all working on a volunteer basis because we just want to help make this better for everybody. Yes. I would really encourage anybody listening to this to check out C's website and download the information because really you do want to see what those guidelines are. You want to see if there's any red flags. You want to educate yourself. And this is probably the best place to get that education before you go down, you know, the journey of having your child through surrogacy, which is typically, you know, so unique for each individual family because each surrogate is different. Each family is different. Yeah. And the website is seedsethics.org because it's a nonprofit organization. So if anybody's 
looking for it, that's where you can find it. And there's also a directory online as well. So you can search for professionals that are members of Seeds. That's fabulous. And and I think that what you've done is remarkable, Lisa. Honestly, from you know five kids to being a surrogate to starting two companies, one in another country. I mean, that's incredible. It really is. I think it just shows your dedication and loyalty and everything else for this field. So thank you. Yeah, uh, no problem. I, I feel that having a family is a right if you want one. And you know, as most people know in America, the cost just keeps going up, and so. When we were working on the law in Uganda, we made them specifically so that people could come from other countries to do surrogacy there, which then cuts the cost about half. So, you know, we're trying to create an ethical, affordable option. Really what's going on there sounds just like, it, it sounds like a, you know, like an oasis, like a fantasy oasis in a way from the way you're describing it. Well, and it's it's right on the equator. So, you know, it, it is, everything grows there. It's Africa is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. So- you know, I mean, it's up and coming, but I mean, they have malls, they have gelato, they have really good health care. So, yeah, I, I had the privilege of going to Africa and I just loved it. I love the people, especially. Yeah. So kindness, like huge kindness is what I took away from there. Yeah. And English is the official language. So, you know, people speak English in Uganda. So one last question about that. Actually, somebody was to use a surrogate from Uganda would it be hard for passports to get back and forth to take the child back with you? Nope. So basically the capital of Uganda is Kampala and there's an American embassy there. So if they're an American, yes, it's the process is a little different for every country, but for Americans, it's very easy because we have pre-birth orders, which is the court document saying that you're the parents. And then there's the process for the birth certificate. So there's like an official, so NERA is the organization there, the government agency that issues the official birth certificate with the government stamp, which is acknowledged by the American government as well. So, you know, we have all the paperwork, the documentation needed. And the nice thing is, is it's really fast to get a passport there because there's not a whole lot of Americans trying to get their passport in Uganda. And so you go in one day, give them the paperwork, and then the next day you come back and pick up your passport. So it's super easy. There's no delays in taking the child home. No, you're ready to go home within seven to 10 days of delivery. Wow, amazing, really amazing. So, well, thank you so much. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? So our website in America is gsmoms.com. And then my- GS. Oh, gestational surrogate moms. Okay, GS. And then, yeah. And then the one for Uganda program is host moms Uganda. So it's hostmomsuganda.com. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can always, you can all just Google me and find me as well. But, you know, either company, depending on which one you're working with, it'll, you'll be able to reach me. Yeah, she, and I have to say, Lisa is amazing because I work with a lot of people and she is like always on top of it. It's just, it's really amazing. It's like they say busy, busy people get things done and you are truly a poster child for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, yeah, thank I'm you. a planner. I'm, a, I'm definitely a planner and I believe in being proactive. Well, you do a great job, right? So thank you so much for being on today. And if anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at laurimetz.net. <laughs>